0: Because I have a, a lot of ground to cover, uh, we were going to cover the rebellion of Korah uh, as we are trying to look at those, each of those uh, Old Testament apostates that Jude points out. Uh, but this being Reformation Day, I wanted to take a little bit of time to consider what is taking place tomorrow and just kind of give us a biblical perspective on Halloween and uh, Reformation Day Two things that are at one sense, as I've said, diametrically opposed, they are, uh, but there is a little bit of an interaction between the two of them. And so that's what I desire to go over this morning, just to give you a little bit of background uh, on these things, because I think it's uh, edifying for us to consider what the Bible says concerning uh, both of these events and how they might relate to our lives. So let me open in a word of prayer and then we will uh, begin. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather once again. And Lord, uh, this morning as we consider the topic of the Reformation and uh, the celebrations that take place on October 31st, again, we pray that we would look at them from a biblical perspective, give us a right view of these things so that we might uh, uh, not take, uh, wrongly exalt a particular day over another, that we might not celebrate the uh, things that we ought not to celebrate, but Father, that we would be able to do all things with a sense of, of uh, fulfilling your purposes for uh, us as we faithfully proclaim the gospel. So we ask your blessing upon our time together and thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, tomorrow, of course, is October 31st and that is a day that is significant, very significant actually. Uh, there are a couple of events that are to be remembered. Uh, One is a cultural holiday that is celebrated, another one is almost forgotten by most people and yet has had far, well, I don't want to say far more impact in this world, uh, but has far more positive impact to be sure. So allow me this opportunity to briefly address with you both Reformation Day and Halloween. Apart from them sharing the same date of celebration, There's no overt connection between the two events, and yet I suggest there is this underlying relationship that I will offer to you in a moment. And so what I would like to do is begin with a little bit of a background on the origins of Halloween. Some of you may be familiar with this. Others of you do not. And uh, I want to share those explanations of Halloween, which then has roots uh, long before the Reformation. So long before there was a Reformation, there was a Halloween. And so we want to uh, kind of go over that. Halloween celebrations have changed over the centuries and varies from country to country. So do not confuse at times practices here for either what has occurred in history or what happens in other cultures. Halloween observances, however, find their origin in the pagan practices of the religion of the Celts, if you're familiar with them at all. The Celts lived in Ireland, Britain, Scotland and France or at the time it was called Gaul. Their priestly castes were called the Druids. How many of you have heard of the Druids before? Okay, how many of you have not heard of the Druids? I need to know that, now you've heard of the Druids, okay. The Druids passed down their practices of their religious rites orally. There was not a lot that was written down so was l- what little is known about their religious practices uh, came to us through various artifacts uh, early Roman visitors who came to the region and they actually saw the Druids' worship, and then uh, from the Irish Druids who did write a little bit of this information out. Among Druid celebrations was a festival to their god, and their god was named Samhain, uh, Sam and it was celebrated on the first day of their new year, which happens to be our November 1st. This was the end of the harvest and the beginning of the cold and the dark winter. The most significant part of the celebration occurred on the night before the new year began, our October 31st. Interestingly enough, the New York Post ran an article yesterday, as I was researching all of this, they ran an article yesterday concerning this very character, Sam Hain and the origins of uh, Halloween. And so you can go to the New York Post, Post website And it is actually, What is Samhain and Halloween Origins Explained? That's the name of the the article. Among um, uh, uh, the Druids believed that corresponding to this event on that That eve between October 31st and November 1st, that there was a veil lifted between the living and the dead. And it was it was thin or it was opened enough so that the spirits who had died would be enabled from the previous year would be enabled to come back among the living. Many of their rituals related to dealing with these dead souls and taking advantage of that opening in this veil between the living and the dead. Now many of the practices still carried out today are actually related to this very ritual that took place among the Druids. Trick or treat is related to the food that was left out to appease these dead spirits so that they wouldn't haunt you. And the practice of dressing in a costume was to fool any spirits that might be looking for you because they were coming back to haunt you. Generally, it was considered that the more hideous the costume the better chance it would be that the spirit would not recognize you. So you would wear these hideous costumes. Bonfires, which are a part of many Halloween celebrations, were built to keep both these spirits and the witches from wicca, meaning wise ones or female magicians, from coming near. Such practices as bobbing uh, for apples, snap apple, throwing apple peels over the shoulder, and roasting nuts were all related to divinations in order to tell the future. So a lot of these things that we do without unwittingly aff- actually have origins in this paganism. The most horrible practice during the festival were the sacrifices made for both divination purposes and to appease the gods and gain their favor. Their sacrifices that took place on October 31st and November 1st were both of animals and humans, most often humans were killed. The, most often the humans that were killed were criminals, but, or captured enemies, sometimes volunteers if they didn't have those. And uh, if they didn't have those, they would just go kidnap someone to sacrifice. There were four different methods of killing the individual that could be used, corresponding to the purpose for which the gods of the individuals was being sacrificed to. And I will not go in to describe those except to say that they were gruesome. And the divination was based on how the person reacted while they were being tortured to death. Cannibalism was also apparently practiced for uh, medical and, cult- and cultic purposes. Now, the question is, how did all of that get transferred to what we know as Halloween today? Well, the Romans conquered the cu- uh, Celts in the first and second centuries. And while Rome suppressed some of the practices of the Druids, such as human sacrifices The real effect was the mixing of the two pagan religions together with some of the Celtic gods becoming confused with the Roman gods. So they just, okay. well, we named him Samhain, but now we'll follow the Roman gods and do the same thing for the Roman gods. Christianity became the official religion of the empire in the fourth century. And something called syncretism, and you see I have the word there, syncretism, began to develop in the church. What is syncretism? Syncretism is when you take basically two differing religions with different practices and you blend the two together to make a new religion. And so uh, when Christianity became the state religion, all of a sudden it wasn't that everybody became Christian. It's just that Christianity got mixed up with all of the other pagan religions. There's a couple of facts that you might like to know. On, On May 13th of 609 or 610, Pope Boniface IV dedicated the pantheon, and the word pantheon means what? It's a temple to all the gods, that's what it was. He dedicated the temple to all the gods, to the Blessed Virgin and all the martyrs, which replaced Ferelia, the pagan festival of the dead that had been previously practiced. So all they did is swap out a pagan practice and put a Christian name on it. Part of the festivity in remembering the Christian martyrs included a pageant where people would dress up as one of the departed saints and some would dress up as devils. That happened under Roman Catholicism. Pope Gregory III shifted this whole celebration from May to November 1st as a day to commemorate all the saints that had died. Pope Gregory IV in 835 established November 1st as the universal observance of the Feast of All Saints, and November 2nd as All Souls Day to honor the souls of the dead, especially those who had died the year before. And another name for All Saints Day was All Hallows Day, and the night prior became All Hallows Eve, which then got translated into the one word Halloween. This is another case where the church tried to change a pagan custom by substituting a quasi-Christian celebration for it. We'll just slap on some Christianity on the surface of it, and you can practice it, and we'll call it Christian. The end result was a pagan hybrid, as seen in the fact that as late as the 17th century, it was said in France that, quote, the greater part of the priests are witches, unquote. So those who were supposedly priests in the church had become practicing divination and witchcraft. Many of these hybrid rituals came to America through all the various immigrant groups, the practices of Halloween specifically coming from Scottish and Irish immigrants whose culture had the strongest influence by those original Druid customs. The celebration of Halloween in the United States has changed over the last century. In the early 1900s, it had much, a, a much more serious affair by those who celebrated it. I mean, it was a serious thing to celebrate. There has, uh, was also much mischief associated with it. Some of the mischief was related uh, was relatively harmis, harmless. Sometimes they would put a carriage on top of a house. I don't know that it might be harmless, but that would be a pain if your carriage was on. For those of you that don't know, it'd be like putting your car on top of the house. Okay. I have a story I could tell, but I won't. You can ask me about it later. Okay, I'll tell you. Uh, <laughs> we, did, we did put a uh, Volkswagen in our high school. We moved a, a Volkswagen onto the, in front of our teacher's uh, door so that, it was her Volkswagen, so we figured, anyway. That was mischief. It wasn't Halloween, though. Okay, moving on. Um, Some of it became harmful. So there was the uh, light mischievous things, and then some of it, they started breaking windows and setting fires to places. Of course, most places were built out of wood, and so the fires would rage. Halloween became more commercialized during the 1950s and the 1960s, and the celebration quieted down into harvest parties and children in cute costumes collecting candy. That's kind of the world I grew up in, I think the first that Ma- uh, first little costume I ever grew up in, and see how we can date some of you people. I think it was Casper the Friendly Ghost. Okay, how many of you know who Casper the Friendly Ghost is? Oh well, okay, good. Well, I don't know if that's good, but anyway, there was occasional the the, the occasional horror movie, and of course movies like Dracula and Frankenstein or some other monster, skeletons and ghosts. A lot of it was just uh, somebody in a white sheet with the, with the holes cut out in it. But most kids were, became uh, not those kinds of things, but for a long time in the 70s and such, it was about comic book heroes or a clown or you know, people dress up the, their children as some kind of zoo animal or a princess or a soldier. Trick or treat became going door to door in your neighborhood. And it was not unusual originally to be invited into the home and enjoy some cider with those that you went and said, hey, trick or treat, and get some cupcakes or baked goods. But then in the 70s, some sinister elements began to enter back into the Halloween uh, celebrations as the treats were sabotaged. Some of you will remember this with razor blades or needles or drugs. Uh, and so that curtailed a lot of the going door-to-door to to get tricks uh, or treats or fruit and uh, you would only go to maybe neighborhoods that you knew or people that you knew very well to get the candy as the decades passed the door-to-door in many neighborhoods was replaced with going to a mall for candy or they do they call it what trunk or treat in a parking lot costumes became once again more ghoulish and Halloween parties took on again more sinister and evil elements. Adult parties today, surprisingly, uh, and I'm going to share the stat with you in a moment, adult parties are now highly sexualized and many will include occultic elements due to the interest in our culture of being spiritual but not because of Christianity. They want to practice a spirituality from outside of Christianity. While Halloween remains fun and games for many, it's a very serious affair for others. This is related to the return and the rise of various pagan groups. Uh, Wicca has uh, propped up once again and, and other pagan groups for which Halloween is actually a very holy, sacred time, and I don't know why my phone is trying to, okay, uh, sacred time. Satan and, and the demonic is, is being celebrated in this time, judging the importance of Of a holiday by length of time and preparation if you just were to say how important is halloween in the united states today if you were to judge it by the length of time and the preparation that goes into our holidays halloween is second only to christmas it is more money is spent and more preparation is made for halloween than for thanksgiving or for easter and the like so how do we respond to this how ought Christians respond to Halloween and so I want to be fair with all of this but I want to give you two biblical principles and sugge- and give you three suggestions on how you may respond to Halloween the first principle is this and it's found in Deuteronomy 18 verse verses 9 through 14 and there God is warning a new generation so remember the first generation of, of, of Israelites had died in the wilderness and now God comes and he's warning a new generation of Of those who are about to go into the Holy Land or into the Promised Land, that they should not get involved with what? The religious practices and the cultural practices of those people. And we read this in that text, and I think we have it for you. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. Folks, I'd stop right there and just say, regardless of whether it's Halloween or not, That's a verse to meditate on. The things that we have adopted from the land in which we find ourselves, uh, we need to make sure that we're not imitating the detestable things of the the nations. Verse 10, there shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, who, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord, and because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God, for those nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and, di- and diviners, Diviners, but as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. Just think about those statements. And I think that uh, um, uh, the, the, the issue of what are the things we allow ourselves to practice uh, with regard to our culture. But there are two warnings that come from this particular passage, and it's these. First, that these were the reasons, those who practice these things, These were the reasons the nations were going to be destroyed by the Lord God. So those who embrace, those who practice witchcraft or, I mean, so what have we done with it? To a certain extent, we've kind of, uh, we've tried to make it harmless and say that witches are, uh, you know, witches and ghouls and all of that. Uh, It's just all done in fun and games. But that leads to the second second statement that I'd like to make, and that's that the practice, I don't know what pactus is, but put an R in there. The practice of those things are real. When we're talking about dressing up our children in a particular fashion, if you just took Deuteronomy 18, and I know some of you can say, well, wait, wait, wait. We're under New Testament grace. But we do know that God finds these things what? Detestable. And so we need to realize these things are real. The Western mind has tried to cover it up and think that, well, that we don't want to believe in the supernatural or whatever, but... Divination, witchcraft, omen interpretation, sorcery, casting of spells, being a medium or spiritist, those are all real things. And so similar warnings are given against the practices in the New Testament as well. Ouija boards, fantasy games, seances, and many more are depicted as not being evil or demonic, but they're fun. They're, they could be family fun. Well, I don't care if it's family fun. If it's demonic, it's demonic, right? OK, uh, we have different games for Halloween, but if they if they are invoking demonic activity, we need to be careful with them. In Galatians five nineteen through 20, do you know what uh, uh, the, that list is? It's the one right before the list of the fruit of the spirit. And he doesn't call it the fruit of the spirit, but he calls it the deeds of the flesh. And notice what he says. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident. You can see them and they are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. And notice there's one in there sorcery. You think that witchcraft isn't real? You think that omen interpretation isn't real? Divination isn't real? Paul thought it was real. The last time I checked, Paul was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And so those who even seek to entertain such things are in the flesh. So we want to keep that in mind. There's a second principle that I would offer to you for your consideration. And that is this, that all true Christianity is results in a change of character in, uh, in a believer. So you're going to be a different person if you are in Christ. Whatever was that that fascinated you before Christ should now be put aside and you become fascinated with Christ and you are engaged in new behavior. In Acts chapter 26, verses 15 through 18, we find that Paul, Paul had a divine call to go to the Gentiles. Notice, I love this passage. But here's Saul before his Paul, he says, uh, and I said to you, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I've appeared to you, to appoint you. I've called you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Why are you sending Paul? To open the eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the domain, dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Why did Paul? Why did God call Paul? He wanted them, He wanted them. To, uh, wanted him to preach a message that would open the eyes. I'm still back in the other one. That would open the eyes. I was trying to read it. <laughs> Okay, open the eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. What is darkness? Well, we saw darkness in Deuteronomy 18. What is the domin- dominion of Satan? It's anything that would get your attention off of Christ, anything that would captivate your soul in that regard. Lives were, are, are supposed to be changed. This is exactly what happened. We can move to Acts 19 now. In Acts 19, in verses 18 and 19, we read that the Ephesians were saved as they responded. How did they, how did they demonstrate the reality of their salvation? It says, many of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. What were their practices? And many of those who practiced magic. Now, this isn't pulling rabbits out of a hat magic. This is divination. This is witchcraft. This is sorcery. Don't tell me that this stuff is all in fun and games. For Paul, it was something for which he was called to call these people out of the practice of such things. He says, and many of them began, uh, and many of those who practiced magic brought their books, very costly books. People didn't, we have so many books today. I have books I don't even have on my shelves yet because I can't get them out of my boxes. These people had uh, magic books worth lots of money and they began burning them in the sight of everyone and they counted up the price of it uh, 50,000 pieces of silver so these were expensive books and they were burning them why because they knew they could have no part darkness has no part in light lives are changed such changes are seen throughout the new testament and those who are saved it would be against the Christian's very character to knowingly be involved with that which the Bible says is demonic. But based on those two principles, I want to offer you some suggestions, and I want to be very fair with what Scripture says with regard to all of these things. Let me offer you uh, a couple, uh, uh, three suggestions on how we might regard Halloween, respond to Halloween. Um, in light of these two principles. The first one is the obvious one, non-participation, right? Avoiding it would be the easiest thing to do. This would be required of those who had a conviction that anything associated with Halloween is evil, since it would be a sin to violate one's conscience. In, in Romans 14:23, it says, whatever is not of faith is sin. If you can't do it by conviction, then don't do it, is what Paul says. With that said, however, following the principle of Romans 14, those uh, those who have such a conviction must themselves refrain from condemning those who do participate in some sort of Halloween celebration for the same reason. If their conviction is not condemning them, if it's done in faith, it's not sin. Let's move to a second suggestion. You could have an alternative celebration find something else fun to do that's not related to Halloween. There's many who practice what they call a fall harvest party. There could be a a costume party where everybody dresses up like a Bible character. It could be some kind of Reformation Day celebration in honor of Martin Luther. I know most of of the time uh, we will show... Um, Luther, the movie Luther, we'll watch that together and just kind of engage in a conversation. We turn off all the lights on the house so that we don't have people ringing our doorbell and and such, but that would be another suggestion. And then finally, I would make this statement a a godly involvement. If you're going to participate in something, find a way in which some uh, aspects of Halloween engaging without being involved in any occultic Practices or violating any biblical command or precepts. So, what are some things that you might do? You might hand out good trick or treat, uh, a good bag of trick to trick or treaters. I can't say that word. That includes a gospel track. If you're going to hand out candy, take the opportunity to share the gospel with them as well. Uh, You can dress up as a Bible character, whether for a party or trick or treating, so long as you tell yourself and tell others. Why, I mean, if you dress up as a Bible character and go, uh, your, your kids as a Bible character, what's the first question most people are going to ask? Who are you? Right? And so if they say, who are you, what can you do at that moment? That's the perfect witnessing opportunity. I'm Moses, and let me tell you about Moses. Or, you know, I'm, I'm dressed up as John the Baptist, or whoever it might be. Use those as opportunities to share the gospel. My intention with sharing all of this is not to condemn or to condone what believers determine is right for them to do on Halloween, so long as whatever they do does not violate a biblical precept or command. Whatever you may decide to do, remember a couple of things. One, that there is to be a distinction between the lifestyle and behavior of a Christian and a non-Christian. And so I'm speaking of my own conviction. I don't see the benefit of dressing up a little Christian child as a witch and sending her door to door because that makes no distinction whatsoever. Number two, make use of every opportunity you have at Halloween or at any other time to glorify God and spread the gospel. Don't just use it as a, a mindless event by which we're just going to totally uh, ignore the opportunities to educate ourselves in in what happened in 1517 with Martin Luther or to to hand out gospel tracts or whatever it might be. Try to find a way to do that if you're going to participate in a Halloween activity, uh, find or whatever alternative. My prayer is that we would not just sit on uh, sit on uh, Halloween or other holiday, do this on Halloween or other holidays, but every holiday we think about how can I share the gospel, because the next one that's going to come up is Thanksgiving, and I'm amazed at how little sometimes Christians will actually engage in that around the table of talking about the blessings of the Lord, and yet what is Thanksgiving, what was it originally for? To give praise to God for his providence and for his sovereignty, and yet now it's just I'm thankful for my shoes, I'm thankful for the candy, I'm thankful for this turkey, let's shut up and eat. I mean, it's just, we have to remember that every festival, every day is an opportunity for us to communicate the gospel. So I kind of blew through that real quickly, but it brings us to the second event that's remembered on October 31st, or ought to be remembered, and that's Reformation Day. October 31st is significant because, as we've said, if you don't know already, in 1517, Martin Luther used it to invite a public discussion at the well-attended All Saints Day feast that would occur the next day. The disputation that Martin Luther, a priest and professor at the University of Wittenberg in Germany, posted on the door of that church chapel was really an invitation. It was saying, here are 95 things I'd like to talk about concerning the practices of the church. Uh, I mean, that's what we're saying all the time. What did we say uh, at, at one point when you uh, go to a Bible study? It shouldn't just be you thinking, I'm going to just suck in whatever that one person that has been preparing, but it should be an opportunity to, here's what I'm learning. Is, is this right? Is, is this something we ought to be thinking about? And that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to have a public discussion concerning some of the, uh, what he saw as abuses of the practice of indulgences, and the consequential appearing of of the offering of salvation by means of of paying money. That if you pay money, and we'll talk about what an indulgence is in just a moment, but if you paid enough money to the church, you could buy salvation for yourself or for a a loved one, a family member, and that was what was going on. The church door in those days served as a public bulletin board so that they could have these kinds of discussions. The notice was written in Latin, and it was entitled. This was the. I mean, if you saw this title today, if you went to, uh, uh, do they still have a bulletin board up in Walmart somewhere? You know, community events. Just imagine if this was the title of something that was up there. Ready? Disputation of Doctor Martin Luther concerning penitents and indulgences. Doesn't that just grab your attention? Is 95. Points. It took up several pages. All right. It contained 95 points that were to be discussed. The document didn't actually condemn indulgences, but only the manner in which it was being practiced. In that document, Martin Luther actually defends the Pope, believing that when the Pope sees these things, when these would be discussed he would obviously go yeah that's right these are, this is not right we need to to correct these things it did not contain any of the great doctrines that we would be speaking of later it spoke nothing of sola scriptura sola fide or sola gratia it spoke nothing of those particular statements uh, it did contain uh, it did not contain those but the seeds of those ideas would be present no one accepted the challenge No one took up Martin Luther in that moment on the next day to talk about these things. However, there were some very zealous people who took those down and they copied them, they translated them, they printed them, and they began to distribute them throughout all of Germany and Europe. And it was written in German and all the German people were going, whoa, we get this, we understand this. That was all happening in in just a few weeks. The reaction, of course, to this was strong, opposing Luther's thesis. Were the church's hierarchy, the monastic orders, and the and the especially the, the Dominicans and the scholastic theologians and traditional Roman Catholic orthodoxy? They were just like this is danger. The chief writers against uh, um, Luther were Tetzel of Leipzig. Uh, I can give you all of these names, but you're not going to care about them per se, but Tetzel and John Eck and and others. John Eck used to be Luther's friend until Luther posted all of these things. Each one of them represented a different university and they spoke against Luther. In favor of Luther, Luther's theses were some certain scholars, German patriots, and most all of the ordinary Christians, all of the Christians were going, Yes, the church has been abusing these things and abusing us. They've been waiting for someone that would stand up and express uh, the pure scriptural religion. They wanted someone that would vent against the abuses of the church. And so uh, Dr. Fleck, who was at the time, exclaimed, Ho, ho, the man has come who will do the thing, meaning he will do that, uh, he will expose all of this. Luther's of posting unintentionally lit the fires of what we know today as the Reformation. And October 31st became celebrated as Reformation Day and the Sunday before that particular day is called uh, Reformation uh, Sunday. And that's what we are doing today. And multitude of denominations over the years have celebrated this. Sadly, so many will just disregard this this day. But the reason why we are here today is because of what Martin Luther did in 1517. Though we are an independent Bible church, not belonging to one of the mainstream denominations, our theological heritage is solidly founded on the Reformation. Hope Community Bible Church would not exist today in the form that we understand it if God had not used those men throughout history to preserve his word, to preserve his truth. As Melanchthon expressed in hindsight about the importance of the Reformation, he said, quote, Christ and the apostles were brought out again as from the darkness and filth of a prison. For so many years, no one understood who Christ was and the teachings of the apostle, but the Reformation brought that all out and freed the truth of the scriptures. In the time remaining, I want to give you a jet tour of church history. So in just like 20 minutes, you're going to get a jet tour. Yes, I can do these things, right? Uh, Because we need to understand the importance of the Reformation. And then we'll conclude with a brief explanation of the five key doctrines that were revived from the Reformation. So here's a quick church history. You ready for this? Okay, the early church was a period, listen to this. The early church was the period of greatest doctrinal purity the church has ever known. And yet, in the time that it was the most pure, there were serious problems as attested to by the many admonitions and warnings that were given in the various epistles. So there was no time that the church was, in a sense, more pure than in the early church, and yet we see that there was still the danger lurking. Paul made many corrections of false teachers in his letters, and Paul, Peter, John, James, and Jude all warn against false teachers teachers. Jesus had warned his disciples in the parable of the tares in Matthew 13. What does he say? That the false would be mixed with those who were the true, and the early church bore that out. It is still true today. Those warnings still apply today. Persecution of Christians began by the Jews soon after the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 3, just think, in Acts chapter 2, 5,000 people are added to the church. In Acts chapter 3, what happens? The Christians begin to be persecuted, right? And we see uh, that Rome began persecuting uh, Christians by the early 60s under Nero. And some of you have not heard this, but Nero, he would actually round up Christians. And in order to have chariot races at night, he would cover Christians in pitch, line them up on his chariot track, and light them on fire. That was happening in the 60s not the 1960s. The, it might have been happening in the 60s, too. I don't know. Those kinds of persecutions that began in Acts chapter 3 continued until the edicts of toleration that were given in, uh, in 311 and 313 AD. So almost 300 years, 250 years of persecution for being a Christian. Persecution had helped keep the church, though, Pure. It kept the teach uh, pure because few were willing to suffer for something that they did not really believe in. Then Constantine the Great came on the scene, and he made changes in the Roman Empire. Constantine converted to Christianity, and he actually allowed his subjects to choose their religion according to the dictates of their own conscience, although he preferred Christianity. But this resulted in some people seeking to be part of the church for political reasons rather than spiritual ones, and so it actually, uh, you think, oh, it'd be great. He he actually uh, made Christi- being a Christian a good thing to to be. But the problem is, is he didn't keep the purity of the doctrine with it. Then came along after him Theodosius the Great, and he made Christianity the official religion to the exclusion of every other religion, and he publi- he punished those who would not follow the orthodox teachings as a crime against the state. Can you imagine the day we live in today, being a Christian is almost considered a crime against the state. At that time, not being a Christian was considered a crime against the state. The church has never done well, though, when the state controls the church. It never does. The church became filled with people who made false professions because, well, they didn't want to die. And they went through the religious rituals to escape persecution and church leadership and positions became sought after not because there were faithful preachers of the word of God, but because men wanted the political power that came with being a, a, a bishop or a, a, a leader. Church doctrine and practice became compromised. Uh, after the early church period, the term bishop, which uh, became a title for someone who had authority over churches in a geographical reason, uh, region, the term bishop was originally meant to simply be a pastor. Theor- technically, according to biblical usage, I'm a bishop. But they began to use the term to, to have somebody who had power over uh, other uh, regions and other pastors And uh, instead of a bishop simply being another name for an elder or a pastor who would shepherd a local flock of God. When Christianity became the religion of the state, the bishop began to exert and gain this controlling influence, and he became a political figure rather than a spiritual figure. Every major city would have a bishop, and, at, and as time went on, these bishops would gain more and more power and influence over other bishops and territories. Eventually, this led to the development of what we know today as the Roman Catholic Church. By the 5th century, most the most influential bishops were those of Rome, Constantinople, Antioch, Uh, Alexandria and Jerusalem, with the first two being the most powerful, that of Rome and Constantinople, which is modern-day Istanbul. Innocent I, somewhere between 402 and 417, claimed that nothing in the Christian world should be decided without his formal knowledge and that all bishops should turn to him, especially in matters of faith. So he just made a declaration. There is no pope before this. There wasn't a succession of popes from Peter up to this time. Innocent I just said, hey, guys, I'm the most important. That'd be like me saying, John MacArthur, Steve Lawson, y'all, report to me now. You don't make any decisions without running them by me, Pastor Ed Godfrey. Well, Innocent had a little more influence than I did, but anyway, that's the idea. And so other leading bishops, also called patriarchs, resisted those claims like, we're not gonna follow you, why would we follow you? We've got our own power, our own influences. And Rome, however, claimed the most power and it remains and continues to say that it's the uh, it's the power of today. By the ninth century, the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, and I'm flying through history here, you know, uh, separated from each other with an incurable antagonism between the Bishop of Rome and the bishop or patriarch of Constantinople, 187 years of mutual anathemas. They kept uh, cursing one another, you know, Rome, you're cursed, okay, Constantinople, you're cursed, and they would have these anathemas, and it culminated in uh, 1054 with what's called the final schism, with each side basically saying, well, guess what, The, the Eastern Orthodox said, we've excommunicated the church at Rome, the church at Rome said, no, we've excommunicated you, And that's what took place. The Roman Catholic Church developed at that time many non-biblical doctrines uh, throughout those centuries as authority shifted away from scripture and to its councils to its magistrates and eventually to a man that would be called the Pope. Doctrine and practice in the Roman Catholic Church have tended to develop slowly becoming entrenched and then declared official doctrine. So they started out and then they got practiced more and more, and then all of a sudden the church said, yep, this is, this is the truth for the church. An example of this would be the rise of the authority of the church over the Bible. You show me one verse in the New Testament that says the church has more authority than the Bible. In fact, I would say that the Bible has the authority over the church. The church only exists because of the authority of Scripture. Roman Catholic pastors started being called priests, and they began distinguishing themselves from laymen by dressing differently around 500 A.D. The title of pope was first given to Boniface III in 607. Kissing the pope's foot about 100 years later, that one seems repulsive, required celibacy uh, among the clergy varied uh, from different popes until 1079 when it became the official doctrine of Pope Gregory VII. In 1215, the Lateran Council decreed confession of sins were to be made to a priest instead of to God. That's 1,200. That's almost 1,200 years of church history. There was no such thing as confessing to a priest, but it became so in 1215. In 1864, so we're getting closer, right? I don't think any of us were around then, but 1864, the Vatican Council condemned, listen, in 16, uh, 1864, the Vatican Council condemned freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of scientific discoveries. We have a new Catholic Church forming right now, because that's what we see taking place, not from a church, but from our government, right? Right. It also asserted that the pope's temporal authority had temporal authority over all civil rulers, so the pope is the boss of all government. In 1870, the Vatican Council added the doctrine of the infallibility of the pope in matters of faith and morals when speaking from, uh, from uh, the, the throne, ex cathedra. The rise of authority of the Roman Catholic clergy was accompanied by its diminished views of scripture itself in order to prop up the teachings of men, we had to diminish what? The scriptures. In 1229, the Council of Valencia placed the Bible itself on a list of books forbidden to be read by laymen. Can you imagine the church saying, don't read your Bible? What did I preach to you this morning? You better get in your Bibles and read it more. The Roman Catholic said, don't let the people read the Bible. That was changed with Vatican II, Uh, uh, The second, which allowed lay people to have Bibles, though they said it could only be rightly interpreted by the church. Indulgences, which were the flashpoint of the Reformation, were tied to the idea of penance in gaining remission for sins. If I pay something, I can be forgiven my sins. What is the only way by which our sins are forgiven, people? Through the blood of Christ. The idea was developed by the scholastics in the Middle Ages, and by 1184, it was approved by the church that you could sell them. You could sell an indulgence, give money to the church, and this will help you earn your way to heaven. By Martin Luther's time, it became tied to the pope's authority that he could actually dispense the extra merits and rewards accrued, by the church, so we're getting all this money and now, uh, and all these merits, and I can say, well, if you just give a little more, I can give you these, these merits so that you can be assured of heaven. The Council of Trent, uh, uh, excuse me, it became further twisted in applying them to those who had already died, so that it became a pathway for salvation of loved ones who were in purgatory um, by means of a monetary exchange, and in 1563, the Council of Trent why, I, I just need to back up here. 1563, really close to what date? 1517, because this is their response to what was taking place. So they began to sell these indulgences. The Council of Trent also pr- pronounced that more than more than 100 anathemas against anyone that differs against the decisions about official church teaching and practice, which included every hallmark doctrine of the Reformation. Everything that I'm about to tell you uh, in a moment were considered cursed by the Roman Catholic Church. In practical terms, it means that everyone who believes that salvation is by God's grace alone, through the atonement of Jesus Christ alone, and applied by faith alone, is under multiple official curses by the Roman Catholic Church. You get to go home today and say you're cursed by the Roman Catholic Church. While this extremely brief history makes it seem like there is no hope for until the Reformation, let me remind you that God has always had a remnant. He always has those who hold to the truth of the gospel, even though it was at times obscured by extr- ex- extraneous non-biblical doctrines and practices. There's always been a long line of believers. There's always been those who believe the glorious truth of salvation by God's grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is even true today of those raised within Roman Catholicism or other cults. It was while Luther was a monk at the Augustinian uh, Convent that the light of the gospel was first shined upon his soul and he believed. Throughout history, there have been many groups that have discerned and rejected false doctrine because they held fast to scripture. And because the Roman Catholic Church generally persecuted uh, such people and burn the writings. We know very little about them, but you may have heard of some of these names. An example is the Waldesians who sought to make scriptures known in the common language. It is estimated that some 13,000, uh, that in 1300, there were 80,000 uh, 80, Waldesians in Austria alone. The Humiladi and probably the Arnoldists were also promoting an evangelical gospel at the time. Even when the vast majority of people held the false gods and false teachings and false gospel, God always uh, preserved his remnant. And folks, I want to remind you that today we may be that remnant. We are that remnant. We are those who are seeking to hold fast to that truth. Let me quickly give you a a rundown of the significant uh, reformers we've already spoken about. Uh, Martin Luther, who became the flashpoint of the Reformation, but there were other significant reformers in the 14th and 15th century. Some of these names, you maybe have heard them. just going to give you a brief uh, background on them. Go look them up. Read, read about these guys. The first one is John Wycliffe. He's called the Morning Star of the Reformation. He actually wrote about, uh, 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 he wrote long before Luther. It was said that he, quote, lit a fire that shall never be put out, unquote, he brought the scriptures to bear on Catholic doctrine. He translated the scriptures into English and laid down the principle of scriptural authority above human authority. Itinerant evangelist who, sought his, who followed his teachings became known as the Lollards, if you ever have heard that name. His writings were carried to the continent and became known to another man by the name of John Huss. So we'll put his name up there, John Huss who became a professor at the University of Prague in Bohemia. He was a popular preacher. And he became another great proponent of the scriptures and its authority, resulting in his speaking against the non-biblical practices of the Roman Catholic Church. This eventually led the Roman Catholic Church to condemn him as a heretic, because he was preventing, he's causing a division, uh, just as they had done to Wycliffe. Though promised safe conduct by the emperor, he was burned at the stake in July 6, 1415. So 100 years before Luther ever wrote, we have Wycliffe and Huss who had paved the way. Luther had some familiarity with Huss's writings, having read some of his sermons while he was in the monastery. He had greater familiarity with the character of Huss and his unjust martyrdom a martyrdom that would strengthen Charles V to keep his word in providing safe conduct for Luther. Other 16th-century reformers—we say again—Martin Luther started it all with those 95 theses. Uh, many stood with him. If you've re- if you've seen the uh, movie Luther, you're you're introduced to a, a great performance by. Uh, um, uh, or Peter Ustinov, right? Is that Peter Ustinov who plays Frederick the Wise? And Frederick the Wise stood with Luther, and uh, that gave some some credentials to that. But the ideas of the Reformation spread to other countries beyond Germany rather quickly. So remember 1517, he did this 10 years later, 1527. The foundations of what would become the Lutheran State Church were already in place in Germany. Lutheran doctrine spread into Sweden and Finland, and then was part of Sweden's, uh, and Sweden adopted Lutheranism by 1529, just 12 years later. Denmark, along with its territories of Iceland and Norway, adopted Lutheranism 20 years later in 1537. Uh, Holdrich Zwingli, you may have heard of him, was a priest in Zurich, Switzerland. He began an orderly exposition of the Gospel of Matthew in 1519, two years after Luther, he became familiar with Luther's writing and by 1522 he began a vigorous work in Switzerland reforming Switzerland under the conviction that the Bible is binding, Bible alone is binding on Christians. The things in Zurich changed rapidly. By 1525, Church juris- jurisdiction, the Roman Catholic Church jurisdiction was overthrown, mass was abolished, services were held in German and the clergy could marry. This reformation spread through the other Swiss cities. Reformation ideas began to spread into neighboring areas of France through the preaching of Guillaume Farrell in 1521. He began a work in Geneva and asked a French acquaintance of his who was passing through, a man by the name of John Calvin, to stay and help. Well, Calvin stayed and helped, and Calvin's work in the years that followed would define much of what is known today as Reformed theology. The Reformation came to England through a convoluted path with King Henry VIII, you know his name. He uh, established the Anglican Church as a consequence of his quest to get rid of his wife. Divorce was illegal, according to the Roman Catholic Church, and so he set up his own church where he could divorce his wife and get a new one. Um, And yet, that opened the door to the Reformation, and it could not be shut, even though there was another person you're familiar with, Bloody Mary, who was seeking to outtake... Out the Protestants. Translation of the Bible into English by William Tyndale loosened and broke the state's grip on the people and their religious faith. Um, I'm running out of time. I I want to simply say that the reformers did not begin by wanting to split up the church. Martin Luther and these men wanted to reform the church. It's called the reformation. They didn't want to split the church. They wanted to reform the church from within. The goal was to correct the errors And to bring the church back into conformity with Scripture. As the essential doctrines of the Reformation, though, became more defined, it became painfully obvious that there would be no reconciliation uh, uh, between those who held such diametrically opposed views. The 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16 says, For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And so very quickly, and you're familiar with these, so I won't belabor them for you this morning. But there are five great doctrines that flowed out of the Reformation, and we hold these in our church. So... Everything I just said has brought you to this. We believe in sola scriptura, that the scriptures alone are the sole authority for all faith and practice. We don't believe that the church can, uh, can be added to that or what the church thinks about scripture is more important than scripture itself. We believe in sola fide, faith alone. And of course, that's the, the main crux of Martin Luther's teaching, that justification by faith. Romans 4 5 says, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So sola fide, we are saved by faith alone, and faith alone brings us to good works, but we do not do good works, add our good works to our faith. We have sola gratia, which is grace alone, God's unmerited favor. The doctrine places the emphasis that God alone is the source of our salvation. We like to quote Jonathan Edwards that the only thing we contributed to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Sola Christus, Christ alone. Uh, Christ is the only mediator between God and man. We confess our sins to him, not to... A priest that salvation is only through him as Acts 4.12 says there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. And uh, then we finally have sola deo gloria for God's glory alone. The ultimate purpose of the reformation that man had exalted himself over God's word and God's means of salvation by grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That man had exalted himself to be the recipient of prayers and veneration. This doctrine was against the exaltation of people such as the the Pope and, and the veneration of Mary and the saints. All glory, according to the Reformers, was given to God and to God alone. Even when humans do commendable good works, the praise and the glory belongs and is to be directed to God. Psalm 115 verse 1 says this, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. The Reformation released the gospel from its prison and laid the foundation upon which others have built uh, since the 16th century. It is no disrespect to point out that the early reformers did not go far enough in their break from Roman, Roman Catholicism. Some of the things that are still held on to by p- Protestant ref- uh, churches today are things that should still be let go because scripture alone should be the guide. But it is difficult to break away from beliefs and practices that your forefathers had ingrained in you since a child. And so what these men did was profound. However, it would be those who followed them that would continue the work of examining beliefs and practices. We are still a part of the reformation today. We still look to the scriptures today. This is what we're striving to do. We should be walking in the footsteps of Whitcliffe and Huss and Luther who humbly but firmly stood on the scriptures as uh, as the word of God alone. They studied it so their conscience would be permeated by it and they would proclaim the truths of it boldly yet they would humbly subject themselves to change their view if they could be shown from scripture where they were wrong. To paraphrase Luther, we are to strive to be conquered by the scriptures and to have our conscience bound in the word of God. The Roman Catholic Church had become infused with the musings of men which replaced the authority of God's word. And Halloween coming full circle is an example of the syncretism that was found in the Roman Catholic Church in which pagan practices were simply repackaged with Christian terminology. The Reformation restored the recognition of God and his word as being supreme. And of the two celebrations that occur then on October 31st, the Reformation is the important one for, the biblical, for biblical Christians. Keep that in mind, whatever you do tomorrow in remembering October 31st. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for what you have done throughout history. And Father, we can see so many things that take place in our cultures and we can see our tendency to adopt what our culture does. And yet, as you so repeatedly warned Israel as they went into the land, they are not to to do. They're not to practice the the practices and the rituals of the people among whom they are going to dispossess the land. Father God, you have called us to dispossess a spiritual landscape. You have not called us to conquer the United States as a a physical territory, but you have called us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. You have called us to uh, not to be distinct and to be light in a world that is dark. And so, Father, I pray that you help us to that end. Help us to be a people of distinction, a people of holiness, a people of the book, a people who proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ, knowing that as your word goes forth, you will not allow your word to return to you void without accomplishing the purposes you have for it. And so we thank you for these reminders. May we rightly worship you every day. We ask and pray in Jesus' name.